Greetings in our Lord Jesus Christ and welcome to Christ Church of Livingston County Teaching Ministry. Christ Church is a member of the Communion of Reformed Evangelical Churches, Tyndale Presbytery. The following audio recording is from a Covenant Renewal Liturgy at Christ Church. We trust you will be edified and ministered to by the Holy Spirit through this audio recording. Let us hear our call to confession this day. Our call to confession is found in Proverbs 30, verses 5 and 6. And it says, Every word of God is pure. He is a shield to those who put their trust in Him. Do not add to His words, lest He rebuke you, and you be found a liar. So we hear that and let it, let it sink in and let, us, let it lead us to confession. Let us lead us to, a, uh, uh, to confess our sins before the Lord and recognize that we are indeed sinners. So God's word is pure and holy and unblemished, but not so our words. Oftentimes our words and the things we say to each other can hurt and bite and sting each other. We tear down and say things we need to ask forgiveness of. But God is a forgiving God, and he shields his own people who trust in him. But he is also jealous for his word, what he says in it. It is our tendency to do what add our own ideas into God's word, to make him say things that he doesn't say, to say things like, well, my God would never. And then we say things that are more our ideas than his. We don't want to add to his word, do we? We want to know his word and what it says of him, what it says of us, what it says of our neighbors. And we want to be truthful and honest about his word. And so we add to his word when we tell falsehood and, and when we go our own way in that. In the sin-filled world, we are often rebuked by God through reading his word or hearing a sermon or the teaching of someone. And we realize that we have not represented God accurately, that we have actually lied in words and actions and deeds about who he is. And when we find that in ourselves and we are chastened, that gives us opportunity to repent. And so this text reminds us of our need to confess our sins. And so if you are willing and able, please take a knee and let us confess our sins together. about children. Um, children are in crisis in our nation today. And in many regards, people in our nation uh, see children as a burden. Okay? We see that in the abortion industry. We see that children, in many people's minds, are disposable. Right? People would rather have a pet today than to have a child. We were just on our way here, we saw in the back window of somebody's car, I love my grand dog. Right? And that's our attitude today in, in, our, in our culture. We would rather have a pet today or a grand dog than a child. You know, abortion is their solution. And I mean abortions that come from so-called clinics that are there, but also... Abortifacient birth control is big. Morning after pills, all of those things. They see children as disposable. 
children are a burden, they say, because they're seen as expensive. Now, these are unbiblical views of children. Scripture sees children rather as a blessing. You think about the scripture passages that you know, right? Children are a blessing. They're a heritage. They're a part of the family economy. They're valuable. In our text for today, we see the love that Christ Jesus has for the least of these, right? And you can't get much more least than little babies, right? Little children. And Christ has concern and love for the least of these. Jesus has a concern and a love for those who are weak and humble, least, those who are overlooked. And we saw that in our passage from 1 Corinthians. The weak things of the world put to shame the mighty. In Jesus' day, the, the weak and the humble, the least, the overlooked, they were often the sick, the demon-possessed, the diseased, the ceremonially unclean. And we see that over and over again as Jesus is going through the countryside and he's healing people, right? And he's, he's bringing restoration to their bodies. And he's bringing restoration to their spiritual uh, estate where he casts out demons from them and things like that. And we see Jesus doing that. But we need to understand as well in Jesus' day, in that time in which he lived, who else was humble and weak and least and overlooked? Women and children. Women and children. It is because of the glory of the gospel reaching the West that women are able to speak out and be feminists today. That's because of the gospel. Because that's not the history of the world with women. Now, over and over again we can see the concern and love that Jesus has for women and children. We see that throughout the scriptures. We're going to see that in our text today. Jesus encourages people to bring children to him and not to prevent that. He welcomes them. And this text shows how Jesus not only receives those who are moved by desire and faith to come to him, but also those who do not yet know they need his grace. He receives them as they are presented to him by their parents. This account of Jesus and the children really demonstrates a great picture of how salvation isn't really from our whacking up the ginger, as P.G. Woodhouse might say, right? But in Christ blessing us before we even know that we need his grace. So let's read the text. It's a short text. Matthew Chapter 19, verses 13 through 15. Then little children were brought to him, that he might put his hands on them and pray. But the disciples rebuked them. But Jesus said, Let the little children come to me, and do not forbid them. For of such is the kingdom of heaven. And he laid his hands on them and departed from there. So let's pray. Dear Father, we thank you for this, your text. We thank you for the wisdom that you give to us in this text. We thank you for the importance that you place upon the least of these. And Lord, we pray that you would give us eyes to see this and minds to understand and ears to hear the message that you are giving to us by your Holy Spirit, we pray. And Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. 
O Lord, you are our rock, our fortress, and our redeemer. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Getting things arranged here. (laughs) All right. So, Jesus, as we can see from this passage, loves the little children. Remember that song? Right? Jesus loves the little children and all the children of the world. Red and yellow, black and white. Right? Remember that? All right. So, that, that's what we want to keep in mind. Jesus loves the little children. So, I want us to see how this little text here, these three verses, um, come into the context, the greater context. Okay, so I'm going to catch you up on the context of this by doing a little background, um, first of all. All right, and so from what I see on my computer, the last time that I was here, if I remember right, um, I preached the last Sunday of 2017, and the text was from Matthew 17, 1 through 13, on the transfiguration of Christ on the mount. Does that refresh anybody's memory? (laughs) All right. All right, so it was here... That Christ, on that transfiguration, on that mount of transfiguration, it was there that Christ's glory was revealed to the three disciples. Um, it was like the veil was taken back, and they could see the glory. Remember how bright and shining he was. You know, and they were struggling for words to describe it. He was, it was so bright, it was like looking at the sun. He was, he was so bright, it was like whiter than any launderer could get whiteness of the clothes. Remember that? So here's his glory shining forth there. And the testimony of who Jesus Christ is was there on that mount. And it was given by the law. And so we see Moses there. And it was given by the prophets. And we see Elijah there. And it was given by God the Father. Right? Who said, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. Hear him. Right, so by two or three witnesses, there on that mount was the testimony of who Jesus is. The Son of the living God was established there before their eyes. They could see his glory and they heard with their eyes. They understood with their minds who Jesus Christ is. And in a sense, this was also giving testimony to the great confession of Peter in the passages just before the transfiguration. Where Peter made testimony that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Remember that? And the Father here is affirming Peter in that. And he's saying, yes, this is my beloved Son. I am well pleased to hear Him. You are right, Peter. You are a rock. As Jesus and the three then move off the mountain, they come down to discover that the other nine disciples are having issues with not being able to heal a boy of demon possession. And they're being confronted by the scribes. And so you get this, here's this glorious mountaintop experience, right? And then they go down the mountain, and they come back into the valley, and they come back into everyday life, and it's chaos. Ever have that happen? Right? Okay, so here they are. They come into this chaos, and the nine other disciples, they can't cast out this demon. They're wondering why, and the scribes are probably there mocking them and, and you know, saying all these things, and that's found in Mark 9. Jesus comes and he writes things. He just comes in and he, 
He takes care of things. He heals the boy. And he talks about the faithless and perverse generation that is before his eyes. And he's implying that the disciples were trying out of their own power really to heal the boy. They, they needed faith. He's correcting them. He's saying you need faith. If you had faith like a mustard seed, just a small amount of faith, you could move a mountain. Now, I think as he's talking to these nine and all of this is taking on, I think pride is edging in on the three that were up on the mountaintop with him. Who had seen his glory. Because we soon find, as the text moves on, we soon find the disciples having a discussion or argument about which of them was going to be greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Right? Where did that come from? Why are they having this argument? For the three, it was obviously not the nine who weren't exercising faith and needed to be rebuked by Christ. I mean, if only the three, Peter, James, and John, could have been there, they would have been able to take care of everything. You see the human nature that's there? And so they're having this discussion together. And they come, they're, they're outside, and they come into the house. In Mark 9, we have the parallel passage to Matthew. We see that they come into the house, and Jesus asks them, what were you talking about on the road? Well, they don't want to answer Jesus. They want to have this argument amongst themselves about who's going to be greatest, but they don't want Jesus to know about this argument. And so they just remain silent. And so what does Jesus do? He takes a child, a young boy, as Mark 9 says, and he places him in their midst. And he says, truly I say to you, unless you are converted and become as little children, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever humbles himself as this little child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one little child like this in my name receives me. Now get the weight of what Jesus is saying there. Unless you are converted. He's telling the disciples, you need to be converted. You need to stop this nonsense. You need to repent of your pride. You need to become like little children. Like this little child standing here who's looking up into your faces. You need to be like him. You need to have childlike faith. And he talks to them about humility. Therefore, whoever humbles himself as this little child is greatest in the kingdom of heaven. It's not about who's going to sit on the big throne. It's about who can serve. I came to be served and not to serve. Is that what Jesus said? Right? No. Jesus said, I came to serve and not to be served, right? I became to be a servant. I came to take on the cloak and get down on my knees and wash your feet. That's the character of Jesus. That's the character of God. And so Jesus talks to them about humility and their need for it. As the text moves on, Jesus then teaches them about stumbling the little ones in the faith. Here are the future teachers. Here's Christ's future teachers. And he says, talks to them about stumbling up 
people. And how it's better to have a millstone put around your neck and be tossed into the sea than to stumble up one of the least of these. And he's not necessarily talking about little children, although they are included in that. But it's God's children. Don't stumble up God's children. Don't be a false teacher. He then talks about the seriousness of dealing with our own sins. We need to make, take our sins so serious. Okay, and again, with this backdrop of humility, we need to take our sins so serious and eradicate sin from our lives that it might be painful. It's hard. It's, it's so painful, it, it's going to feel like cutting off hands and feet and gouging out your eyes. He's giving these stark pictures of what that looks like. This is how painful it is to deal with sin in our lives. Jesus then tells them of the Father's love for his sheep. His Father's love for his sheep. And this is what the Father does. He's like a good shepherd who goes out and when he loses one sheep who's gone astray, he goes out to find that sheep. And he rejoices over this one that is found. That's the Father's love for his sheep. That one is saved. He's got all the 99 and then this one is back. His hundredth is back. And that leads to Christ dealing with sinning brothers who sin against us and our need to lead them back to repentance and faith, to confront each other in sin, to be willing to love each other enough to say, brother, sister, let me work with you in your sin. And so we have the great section on discipline within the church. And this discipline in the church, which should if we're living by faith, should just be step one all the time. It should be a brother and sister dealing with each other, one-on-one. -on -one. Not with two or three. Not with the bringing to the whole church, but repentance and faith. And so, this way of dealing with each other in our sins and, and going to the other person when there's been sin and we need to reconcile with each other, this is the way that the Father goes out to recover lost sheep. He does that through His church. He does that through His people, through brothers and sisters. This is God going out and recovering His lost sheep. It's through the discipline of the erring brother, the sinning brother, and our taking the time to love them enough to rebuke and correct them in love. That's how the sheep are brought back into the fold. But once a brother is repented, then what do we do? And so Jesus moves on in the text. Then what do we do? Forgive them. And he has a section on forgiveness. And so the chapter, chapter 18, ends with forgiveness, which leads us back to humility. Being humble to forgive and humble enough to seek forgiveness. And so humility is just the backdrop of everything that's going on in chapter 18. And then we move into chapter 19, and there isn't chapter divides here. This, this whole theme is moving on, it's continuing on. And so we follow that into the section on marriage and divorce at the beginning of chapter 19. And we see that that is a relationship that truly requires forgiveness often, right? Between a husband and a wife, where we offend and we hurt and we do all manner of things, 
And that's where forgiveness needs to be in that relationship, in that most important of relationships, human relationships. Right? Dealing with each other's sins. Humility about ourselves. Repentance. And marriage, Jesus says, ought not to be taken lightly. And neither should divorce. And Jesus says the only legitimate divorce is one where the covenant is broken through sexual immorality. Porneia, he says, as Jesus relates. And this then leads to the children that we find in our text today. See the natural progression here? And so that leads to children being brought to Jesus to bless them, which are the fruit of a husband and wife, which are a fruit of marriage. And so we have that in our text for today. You see how all these flow together? All those text flows together as you read it and you see it's building on each other. And Jesus is doing something here. And he's teaching in a certain way. And he's, the backdrop of it all is humility. It makes a cohesive unit naturally progressing through each step. Okay? Through our relationships with each other. Now, Jesus in our text for today returns to the theme of humility that started off uh, back in the beginning of chapter 18. The necessity of childlike humility for his servants. And we want to think through this section and what the Bible says about children. Now chapter 18 begins with the example of humility that Jesus shows by standing a small child in their midst. Okay, and we've covered that. And now in chapter 19 we find people bringing children, little children, according to Luke 18, infants to Jesus. Here, he's bringing, people are bringing infants to Jesus to bless them, to lay hands on them, to pray for them. Look at the faith of these people who are bringing their children to him, who are bringing their children to Jesus. They see in him truth, and they see in him power, and they see in him wisdom. Some are probably connecting him with being the Messiah, and they want the Messiah, the King, to bless their children. And what a great example that is to us, to bring our most precious things to Christ willingly and seeking his blessing upon them, to bring our children to Christ. You know, we ought always to be bringing our children to him. When they are infants but throughout life as well. There is always a connection between parent and child, and so we parents ought never to stop bringing our children and our grandchildren before the throne of Christ. Always to be bringing them to the throne as we pray for them. Jesus is here, and so all of this is going on, and these parents are bringing in, and the disciples have a different view of all of this a different view of children than Jesus has and that these parents have. As the people bring their infants and children to Jesus, the disciples are rebuking them. They're rebuking them. They're turning them away. They're stopping them at the door maybe and saying, no, you can't come in. No, 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 don't bring your children in here. Jesus is too busy for mere children. Don't you see what a great teacher he is? He's too busy for them. He's got greater issues to deal with, things to do. Don't bother the rabbi with them, these insignificant beings. He's too important for children. 
There are much more pressing things to teach and do than to be wasted on these children. But that's not Jesus' response to children, is it? That's not how Jesus responds. Look at what Jesus says to the disciples. Let the little children come to me. And do not forbid them, for of such is the kingdom of heaven. He's taking them back to that beginning part in the beginning of chapter 18. Remember the humility. You need children here. You need to see their humility. You need to get down on your hands and knees with them. Mark 10.14, the parallel passage, says that Jesus was greatly displeased with them. He's greatly displeased with the disciples over their turning these children away because they're not getting it. Jesus wants the children to come to him, to be brought to him. Don't forbid them, he says, for such is the kingdom of heaven. We find the attribute of humility and trust in children And that doesn't mean they're without sin. But there's a certain characteristic of children that they have this attitude of humility and trust that's missing from a lot of us adults. Utter reliance upon their parents, like what we need to have before God the Father, our Heavenly Father, right? As His children. Calvin says this, And it's a long passage, so I'm just going to kind of summarize and paraphrase it. But basically, Calvin says, we think we know the mind of Christ. But we can often be mistaken when we impose our ideas and our extra-biblical ideas upon Christ. And so we build idols of our own making made out of false understandings of what we think Christ's response is to certain situations. And that's the disciples here. They think Jesus doesn't want to have anything to do with these children. He's too busy for all that. He's got people with demons that need to be exercised, right? Doesn't have time for children. They've raised up a false attitude, an idol of who Jesus is. That's exactly what the disciples are doing here. They assume Jesus would be wouldn't be bothered by all these children. Because, here's the problem, they're bothered by these children. Right? They're bothered by these children. That's why they don't want them around. They're a nuisance. They get in the way. They're always asking those questions. Right? I mean, if they give way to these parents, it could be never-ending. You know how many kids are out there? Jesus will never get any rest. People will bring chill all the time to him. It's going to be never ending if people keep bringing him all these kids. Matthew Henry says, It's good that Christ has more love and tenderness in him than the best of his disciples. And if he will not break a bruised reed, neither should we. And so Jesus takes them up in his arms. And he lays his hands on them and he blesses them. And this is 
in total keeping with the rest of the scriptures. What do the scriptures say about children? And I just want to read some passages here. Genesis 17. I mean, I just picked a few out. But think of Genesis 17, where God is with Abram, and he's changing Abraham's mind, or his changing Abraham's name, sorry. And he says, I will make you exceedingly fruitful. And what fruit is he talking about? He's talking about children, and he's talking about his land holdings and all of those things, right? But he says, I will make you exceeding fruitful, and I will make nations out of you, and kings shall come from you, and I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you in their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and your descendants, your children, your grandchildren after you. And I give to you and your descendants, see how often he's repeating this, how important children are, and I will give to you and your descendants after you the land which you are a stranger, all the land of Canaan as an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. So if you're taking notes, write down Genesis 17. Go, look at that. Look at the importance that that lays to children. Deuteronomy 31, beginning in verse 9, 9 through 13. This is where Moses is reading the law to them, right before they're getting ready to go into the promised land. And here's what's said in verse 12. Gather the people together, men, women, and little ones. Literally nursing infants. Bring them all. Bring them all. Men, women, nursing infants, and the stranger who is within your gates, that they may hear and that they may learn to fear the Lord your God and carefully observe all the words of this law, and that their children who have not known it may hear and learn to fear the Lord your God as long as you live in the land which you cross the Jordan to possess. And this is a commandment that Moses is giving that's saying every seven years gather the people together, men, women, little nursing infants, so that they may hear God's word and not forget. Bring the children in. Let them be taught. Don't put them away. Let them come. Deuteronomy 6, we, we know that passage. It says, about instructing these words which I command you today shall be in your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up. Then going down to verse 20, it says, When your son asks you in time to come, saying, What is the meaning of the testimonies, the statutes, and the judgments which the Lord our God has commanded you? Then you shall say to your son, and it gives them the history, Remember the history of what God has done by his mighty arm and his outstretched hand. Teach them that. Teach them this way. Teach your children. Be diligent to instruct them in the way. Psalm 127 says this about children, right? Verse 3, Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward. Boy, I don't think we get that in our culture today, do we? The fruit of the womb is a reward? Right? I was just said, we see children as a burden. Bible sees them as a reward. 
The fruit of the womb is a reward, like arrows in the hand of a warrior. So are the children of one's youth. Happy is the man who has his quiver full of them. They shall not be ashamed, but shall speak with their enemies in the gate. That's the view of the Bible about children. 2 Timothy 3.14 says, But you must continue in the things which you have learned and been assured of, knowing from whom you have learned them. And Paul says this to Timothy, And that from childhood you have known the Holy Scriptures. His mother and grandmother have taught faithfully Timothy to where he is a pastor now. Matthew 21 says, but when the chief priests and scribes saw the wonderful thing that he, had did, that he did, and the children crying out in the temple and saying, Hosanna to the son of David. Here's the children there. And what are they doing? They're crying out in the temple, saying, Hosanna to the son of David. They were indignant. Here are the chief priests and the scribes are seeing all the wonderful things that Jesus is doing. They're hearing the children and they're saying, they're indignant and said to him, do you hear what they're saying? You hear what these children are saying? And Jesus said to them, yes. Have you never read? Out of the mouth of babes and nursing infants you have perfected praise. And he's quoting Psalm 8. Jesus is saying, let it come on. Let him sing praises. Let him say Hosanna to the king. Peter in his first sermon after Pentecost, in Acts 2. Big, long sermon, but he summarizes it as this. Here are the Israelites, and they're saying, what must we do to be saved? Men and brethren, what shall we do? And Peter says to them, repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And then he says, for the promises to you and to your children and to all who are far off, as many of as our Lord God will call. So there's not a disconnect between what I gave you in the Old Testament and what you are to do now. Children are still a blessing. Children are still a heritage from the Lord. Teach them diligently. You see, the Bible doesn't view children as little heathens that we treat outside the covenant until they make a profession of faith later in life. But instead, they are seen as part of the visible covenant people of God. The visible church. They're a part of it. Paul even regards the children of at least one believing parent as holy seed in 1 Corinthians 7. Where in, in, in verse 14 he says, For the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified by the husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but now they are holy. They're set apart unto the Lord. And so most of the Reformed commentators I read from Calvin to Matthew Henry to uh, William Hendrickson to uh, R.C. Sproul, Daniel Doriani, all saw a connection or an application here to infant baptism for children. All right? And while that's true, it is also diligent instruction to children, training them in God's ways, indoctrinating them. Oh, should we not say that? Right? We, we do want to do that with our children. We want to teach them doctrine. We want to indoctrinate them in God's word. 
in his teaching, in his truth. So let me say this. Infant baptism is a great picture for us that salvation is from God first. That regeneration precedes faith. God acts on us working life, regeneration in us before we can breathe and come to him by faith. And infant baptism is a picture of that work of God. And we also see that in adults that come, who later in life are regenerated, and then they come. And we baptize them too, right? Now, that's all I'm going to say about baptism. So let's make some applications. First of all, we can see our cultural problems with children. The tremendous culture of death at the abortion clinics is testimony to how we as Americans view children. And it's a tragedy. We have heard our family, we were talking about this last night, we have heard parents in stores with their children with them, next to them, right in line with them, say things like, I don't know how you can have so many children. I can't stand the two I have. That's a tragedy. Or I can't wait for summer to end so they can get back to school and get out of my hair while the children are standing there. Or how can you afford them? They're so expensive. You know, this shows and teaches the children that are listening to them, listening to these, their parents or their grandparents, that they are a burden and relegated to second-class citizenship. They don't really matter. That's not Jesus' opinion of children. I hope you see. That's not God's opinion of children, is it? You know, the rise in the pet craziness that I brought up before shows it is easier to deal with pets than with kids. But that there's still some longing there to have some connection with some being. <laughs> we see in kids being shipped off to school to be indoctrinated by the wrong team, the socialists. in the government schools. This should never, these things shouldn't be the attitude of Christians about children. That's being on the wrong team. So that's the world where we live. But where do our problems as Reformed Protestant Christians lie? And I think a big one for us is sentimentalism. Sentimentalism. We want children on our own terms. We want them to perform for us and not embarrass us ever. Right? So we get them doing all of these things that we want them to do. 
so that they can be perfect because that shows how great we are as parents. Right? And then we have to ask, is it really a love and concern for them? Or is it just because we don't want to be embarrassed and we want them all to fall right in line and do everything like a little drill instructor? (laughs) Right? Or perhaps we, and this is part of sentimentalism too, perhaps we want to live vicariously through them. We want them in sports or to be a great pianist or a violinist or a speaker or whatever, even if that might not be where their talents are. Even if that might not be where their interest is. We want them to make us look good. And when we do that, we forget that kids are kids. Children are children. And they're messy and disorganized and dirty. And yet, when you look at that little child who comes in because he's just been in a mud puddle and he comes up to you, you can see the trust and the love and the humility that he has. Right? It's almost like he doesn't even know he's dirty. We need to see that and see his trust and his humility and not stifle that. We need to see them as God sees them. A blessing that he has entrusted to us to train up in the way they should go so that when they are old they will not depart from it. That we should train them up in the way that they should go in the freedom of the gospel. The freedom of the gospel. To teach them God's word diligently and talk about it when we're in the house and when we're by the way and when we lie down and when we rise up. Look, it doesn't matter if they know Latin. Okay? It doesn't. It doesn't matter if they know Latin. Doesn't matter if they're experts in math. Doesn't matter that they can play the accordion or the piano or whatever. Right? That, in the in the grand scheme of things, doesn't matter. Those things don't matter much to God. Okay, but what does matter to God is remembering his law, right? We just read that out of Deuteronomy. Teach these things to your children. When your son comes and asks you, then teach them God's way, God's story. There's nothing wrong with learning Latin or learning math or any of those things. But don't let those things overshadow the fact that we are to teach our children God's ways first and foremost. His ways. Teach them so they can apply God's word to everyday life. Teach them the Proverbs. And so that means taking serious the things of God. And that might mean taking serious our humility, our need for humility. To say, you know what? I don't know. I don't know God's word as well as I should to be able to teach my children. Maybe I better humble myself and learn it better and learn it more. 
So when my children come up with these bizarre questions, I can answer them. That means taking serious the things of God's word and giving time to them in everyday life. You know what, parents? Here's the thing. We fail at this all the time. Don't we? Any perfect parents out there? Right? Any perfect grandparents out there? Right? We fail at this all the time, don't we? But you know what? We're God's children. And He cares for us perfectly because we're we're a mess. And yet He cares for us too, doesn't He? He cares for us perfectly and is patient and long-suffering with our shortcomings and our failures. And we need to be failing, as Tim Bailey says, Tim Bailey says, in the right direction. Okay, We need to fail in the right direction. And what he means by that is we know where we're going, we know what the goal is, and we're repenting when we sin and when we fail and all of those things, but we're going in the right direction. We know it's this way, even though we're falling off here or we're falling off there. We know what the goal is. The goal is godliness in our children. The goal is godliness in us. And children, all you children in here, you can pay attention now. Okay? You're going to have parents that mess up. You're going to have parents that sin against you. Yeah. Say it again. <laughs> right? You know what? Your parents aren't perfect like you. <laughs> Are you perfect, kids? Are you perfect? No. You know you're not, right? So you have to have grace with your parents too, just like your parents have grace with you. Okay? And here's the thing. God addresses you children directly in his word too, doesn't he? Remember this passage? Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and your mother, which is the first commandment with a promise that it may be well with you and that you may live long upon the earth. Right? This is for you. And fathers, mothers, don't provoke your children to wrath. Right? This is where the relationship and humility and the correction and forgiveness and reconciliation and all those things come together that we find in Matthew 18 and 19. It's right in some of these core relationships that we have. You know what? It leads us back to the gospel. It leads us back to the gospel that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And when we fail and when we sin against each other, we repent and we extend forgiveness and we give forgiveness and we ask for forgiveness and we love each other. We do that in our families. We do that in the church. That's how people know that we are Christians, by our love, right? And that's that kind of love that in the messy situations, we extend love and grace to each other. And we work with each other. And we repent. And we humbly remember Again, humility is the backdrop to all this. We humbly remember our own sins and shortcomings and failures, and we all go to the cross 
and we forgive one another as Christ forgave us. And that's the gospel. That's what Christ has done. He broke his body and shed his blood for our sake and on our behalf that we might have life and have it abundantly in him. Let's pray. Dear Father, we thank you for this, your text, and we thank you for all of your scriptures, the full counsel of your word. Oh Lord, we pray that you would impress these things upon our minds, we would, that you would impress our attitudes and our thoughts towards each other and towards the least of these. Impress those things, your attitude, your thoughts on these things. Impress those upon us, Lord. Make them a part of our being. Help us to see our need for love for even the least of these, our brethren. Oh, Lord, may you be lifted up and exalted this day. May your name be praised and glorified. May you be exalted. And, Lord, help us to come and rejoice in the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And while we were yet sinners... Christ died for us, and that through him we might have life and have it abundantly. Oh Lord, give us such life, we pray, in Jesus' most powerful and holy and awesome name. We have the great privilege of coming to the King's table come to this table which is called the Eucharist with thanksgiving because we have nothing else to bring okay? but our thanksgiving to the Lord who has done marvelous works for us and that he has brought us into his kingdom, into his family so that we might be called children of God. Who are we that we should be called children of God? We are nothing in ourselves but in Christ we have it all. We have everything that we need. So come to this table with rejoicing and thanksgiving. Thank you for listening to this audio recording from Christ Church of Livingston County. If you would like further information about anything in this recording, the Bible, about Christ Church of Livingston County, or wish to make any other related inquiry, please feel free to contact us through our website, ChristKirkMI.com. That's C H R I S T. K-I-R-K-M-I dot com. Again, thank you and blessings.